0: Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host Claire Campos-O'Neill as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot.
1: Hey, everyone. It's Claire Campos O'Neill, and I'm here with Nicole Abshire, my amazing co-host for Go Behind the Ballot. We have an amazing episode for y'all. We are speaking with Candace Hunter. She is running for the Austin School Board for District One, and she has so much knowledge about education. We talked about the teacher shortage, what TEA is, her school board race, all kinds of amazing things. Nicole, what am I missing? Well, I think you covered it. But well, how about
0: what it is like to be a teacher? I mean, she really touched on all of the various pressures and why we are in this teacher shortage that we are in and how long it's been coming. So she was super informative. She is definitely an expert on a gajillion things. So sit back and enjoy because she is really a great listen and really knowledgeable.
1: Candice, thank you for joining us this morning. Just to start things off, can you tell a little bit about your story, who you are, what brings you to us this morning, and as you're going to share about education and all that great stuff?
2: Yeah, so I'm a native Austinite, or maybe I shouldn't say native, but I am a fourth-generation Austinite, and I am a product of Austin ISD, so I've always lived here. I did go away for a little while to school actually to become a lawyer. So my major was political science for three years. And then at some point something just clicked and I was like, now I have to tell my parents, they just spent three years worth of dough on something I'm not going to do. And when I told them I was going to become a teacher, they were like, oh my God, finally, we didn't know if you were ever going to realize that you should be a teacher. I was like, really?
1: What kind of law were you going to study?
2: Oh, I was just actually criminal law. Yeah. So like I grew up on all of the 80s legal shows, LA law and those sorts of things. But I (laughs) I just really wanted to be a lawyer. Super love to be in front of people talking. You know, teacher, you have a captive audience. So that worked for me well. (laughs) And so after I switched over and it just like all of the struggling I had done in three years of getting ready for law school and LSATs and moot court. And then all of a sudden, when I jumped to education, everything just flowed. And so I graduated. I began teaching you guys. And I was not really teaching. I will always say I was facilitating because every kid that I was in an affluent school, they came to you ready, made You know, there was no, it's like add water and mix and you were done. And then I came back home because I was going to have a baby and I stayed home for five years and then I came back. A lot changed in five years. And I wound up at Webb Middle School, got hired the senior that TEA, the Texas Education Agency, said this school has failed too much. We got to close it. And I sucked. I was like the worst teacher ever because I'd never taught immigrant students. I'd never taught children living in poverty. I just didn't have any of those skills. So I just sat down and was like, uh oh, duh, you were a kid raised in poverty in Austin ISD schools. What did you need? And I became that. And of course, that year, our school was saved. We scored went from 35 to 85 in social studies, which is what I taught. And then I just was like, oh, my God, I know what to do. I'm in my groove. And I've been doing that ever since. I will tell you as a teacher, I never, ever went to a school board meeting. Never. I didn't have time. I didn't know what was going on. In 2015, I left the classroom because I had an eighth grader who's on the spectrum. And when you have to manage eight different teachers with an IEP you don't have time for full-time work. That's when I started digging in to all of the stuff that was going on. And I began seeing the inequities. And literally, at first, it was just the inequalities. It was like, that's not even the same. Like, Brown versus Borg said this was supposed to already be changed. And so that's one thing that I did. And then it just snowballed from there. And the people were like, well, I don't know how to do this. And I was like, well, I think I can help you. I guess the thing that really turned it for me was the pandemic. Thank you, horrible coronavirus, I guess. People were freaking out about the star test. People were freaking out. And I was like, you know, messaging people. And I was like, I can't message 800 people. What? How? And then my kid was like, why don't you just make a video? I was like, duh, we got everything in the house. So I made a video and I was like, so about the star test, let's talk. And then I was like, oh, and this is going on in Texas. And then, oh, this. And so it became like a weekly video series. Then I did a podcast with another community member who was like, hey, Thank you for being a guest. Would you want to be a co host? And then, like, fast forward today, that's where I am advocate, co host on a podcast, and now running for school board. I
0: love it. I want to jump back to Statini, but before we move too far in the other direction, which is I don't know, Candace, if you and I have touched base on the fact that I was a public school teacher, but now at this point, it was 10 years ago, for 10 years. And I, too, never went to a board meeting really had no idea what was happening at the state level in terms of education in that portion of how everything works. So I think that's really interesting that because now I see the need to know all of those things and to be informed and to advocate for ourselves, you know, if I were still a teacher. But it's so wild to me that I didn't see it at the time. And I guess because it is such a an immersive job, right? It's so consuming in all ways that kind of the last thing I guess I had space for capacity for was also advocating for the job at that level. So it's so awesome that you're there to be the voice of teachers and for teachers.
1: This is jumping ahead a little bit. I was going to ask about parents, but for teachers, what do you think teachers should be paying attention to in these
2: school board meetings? So anything that actually is affecting the school board that's coming from the state, right? Because all of the things generally in our local school districts, and I speak for urban school districts, we're going to be a bit more progressive. So there's not a lot you have to watch for. There's always going to be the contingents that want to burn books or, you know, not have sex ed, like in high school even, but just the general, like keeping your eye on what is the state doing? That's going to show up in your local board meeting because they're going to have to decide oh, how close do we want to sail to the edge on this type of item before we get snagged by DEA or even the governor. And so those are the types of things I always suggest. Like I wish there were more podcasts that were focused on local. In fact, I think every district should have a podcast, honestly, right? But just to focus on just that district so you can tune in for 20 minutes, 30 minutes and find out what's happening and know Okay. Now I know what to watch for, but not every school district. I know that Dallas has one and I think Houston might have one. And then, you know, we're kind of the one for Austin, but I think that's important. But teachers really need to watch what's coming down from the state because that's what's going to pay- play out in their classrooms. The general, like local things they're kept abreast on just in like their PLCs and their staff meetings.
1: So let's take a little bit of a step back. Can you tell us what is the TEA and what is their role regarding public education in Texas?
2: A couple of things to know is that the Texas Education Agency is basically what you might, in some states, they call the Board of Ed, right? They're the, we're going to oversee the Texas Education Code, which is what we live and die by in education. And they also provide guidance, but they are really, after the governor, oh, I guess you'd say, yeah, the legislature is going to set like laws into the TEC. But after the governor, I guess TEA would be like, look to. And something you should know about the commissioner is he is not voted on. He is appointed by the governor. So, so go the governor. So goes the TEA commission. So goes TEA. So I've never seen a commissioner go, oh, nah, governor, thank you for appointing me, but I'm going to do my own thing. I've never seen that. So if you have a very conservative governor, a very progressive governor, that's the kind of education agency you're going to have for that term. And we've had Mike Morath for quite some time.
1: And Mike Morath, tell us a little bit about him. Does he have an education background? How would a governor even go about selecting someone for such an important position like this? Thank you for asking.
2: I get to use a little bit of my U.S. history teacher learning and knowledge. So if you've ever heard of cronyism, (laughs) that Andrew Jackson started that. So for all of the people that supported his campaign, he was like, I got you. You want to be a judge? I got you. You want to be the head of something? You have no experience? Don't worry about it you're my buddy. I got you. And that's exactly what happens even in 2022 is cronyism. So Mike Morath was on the DISD school board. So I would say that's the, you know, he has children in school here in Austin. That's about as close as he gets to education. And so he's not, he wasn't a classroom teacher. I think he may have been a sub at some point. I've heard somebody say that. I don't know that that's like a fact. But as far as having someone who's like in it, knows it, has experienced it from like the classroom, administrator, central office, he is not that person.
0: Interesting. We're both just sort of nodding our heads. I'm not sure how to take that in. <laughs>
2: so why would you put someone like that in charge of education for the entire school district? I will also say, sometimes I have to put my little tinfoil hat on. I will also say that when you have a background, because DISD spent a lot of time trying to turn public ed into privatization, turn it over to a private, I call them privateers, but to turn it over to privateers. And you still see some of that in through TEA. Look at how many charters they approve all the time. Or they don't approve them. The SBOE, the State Board of Education, actually approves them. And then TEA kind of, you know, kind of checks in on them, but not like I would like to see. And I mean, just if you drive around my neck of the woods here in Austin, there's literally, I'm not even kidding, literally a charter school on every single corner.
1: Yes, we are going to dig deep into charter schools in another episode. I got very curious about charter schools because there was one that was going to come to my neighborhood. And I was like, I don't know how this is happening. Like, we didn't vote on a bond. It just they didn't even tell us they were coming. A neighbor found out about it through a commercial map that they happened to find. And it was just like, what? So yeah, once I looked under that rock, I was like, this is another world. So we're going to help folks understand that because that's another another thing <laughs> that takes some time to dig into. So then the rest of TEA, how is that staffed and filled out? Are they appointed? Are those positions appointed by Mike Morath, education commissioner? I don't want to step
2: too far into my depth because I've actually applied for a job at TEA at one point, but it's a state agency. And so you apply for it like you would, you know, the Texas State Library or like you would apply to any other, you know, the water quality board, you apply for certain positions. I would imagine that the closest Just like any other job, right? We'll post it, wink, wink, and then you get who you need in there. In fact, Austin ISD just lost someone to TEA who used to work at TEA, and so now he's back over there. So, you know, I guess like any other agency, you apply and then you get you get the job. It's like, you know, thousands of positions. There's people that answer the phone. There's people that have specialties and testing and all different kinds of areas. So it's a huge, huge
1: agency.
0: Can I ask what may be a dumb question? But I know you guys are
1: really lovely. We like dumb questions.
0: (laughs) Well, I know. It's like, you guys won't call it dumb. You'll be nicer than that. But is there an expectation that each new governor, granted, I know we've had (laughs) these long-term governors but each new governor appoints a new commissioner. Like, let's say if we were to have a new governor, is there a chance that he could still like Mike Marath and keep him in that position? Or is it just sort of an expectation that each governor appoints their own commissioner?
2: It's an expectation, just like, I don't know if you guys know a lot about the governor's office, like all the secretaries, everybody you know. My mom used to work for Mark White back in the day. When you go, it's like a president. Everybody goes with them. The expectation would be even if our new governor, from my lips to God's ear, were to be elected, it would be very foolish to maintain the same commissioner, even if you really like them, because there's so much negativity attached to that person. I mean, we just went through that in Austin ISD with the interim superintendent. We're like, might be the greatest guy in the world, don't pick him, because we got a lot of bad feelings about the last superintendent that hired him. And so, yeah, I would hope that the governor would select someone new and someone with a background in education, you know, even a former superintendent. Because to be a superintendent, at some point you were a teacher, well, usually. And at some point you were a campus level administrator and then a central office administrator. So you've come up through the ranks and seen and kind of understand. But just to pull some guy off the street and be like, yeah, man, hire a bunch of people to tell you what to do. And then you decide which thing to do. That doesn't work. I mean, we can see that doesn't work. Wow. I will say this. He is not totally wrong on everything. I mean, the guy has some common sense. I agree with him on a lot of things. Like he totally gets the teacher shortage thing, right? But he doesn't have any good answers for us. Because of the governor, he couldn't do certain things when it was during the pandemic. So again, he's left some scorched earth. So again, I would really hope that our new governor would definitely pick someone different.
1: Yeah, I think it's really important for us to pause and note that the person who runs the Texas Education Agency is appointed by the governor. So when we say voting doesn't matter, I mean, it does. But these statewide positions have such big impact beyond just that specific person. It's like you're saying, the team they bring with them and the agenda they set forth for these big institutions that we have in this state. So we got to vote. vote, (laughs) Yes. I want to
0: piggyback on that, which is to say that what was occurring to me is, you know, I just watched a little video right before we got on of Mike Morath talking about the teacher shortage and their the panel, I guess, that they created to look at that. And my thought was, as we were just talking, is that, it does sound great. And I saw the map of, you know, the places that they've pulled teachers and administrators from, and it looks like it really is covering the whole state. And all that is fantastic. But I hear what we're saying, which is that but when you're appointed and you serve at the behest of somebody who has a very specific agenda for that agency, When you listen to the feedback of a panel like that, you're going to be filtering it through that agenda of who you serve. And so while those people may be giving answers that are amazing and could really change the teacher shortage, it is also being filtered through an agenda. And so it is important to be aware of what that agenda is and listening to the answers that those folks are giving in ways that are open and actually solution oriented. So,
1: yes, voting vote vote, 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 vote. Yeah, I really want to talk a lot about the teacher shortage. But before that, can you tell us about the work that you do your company? I heard a little bit about you talk about this in a podcast. And I was like, wow, this is such a smart business. And by the way, I would be a client of yours
0: but we'll talk more about that. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead.
2: So like I said, in 2015, that's when I jumped out of the classroom because I just had to manage my son's IEPs. Can you tell us about what's IEP? Thank you for, I will do teacher speak. It is an individual education plan. And once a student has gone through the process of being admitted, reviewed, or dismissed, which is called an ARD or ARD meeting, once a student has passed through that process and is then admitted To receive special education services, they're not admitted to special ed, they are able to get a service that is provided by in Texas. If you just want to Google that, you'll see that we've been in trouble for that a while. And while I was doing that, I was mostly at home and then I'd have to pop up to the school to be like, why are you following his IEP? Why is this not happening? Why did you send this homework home? He gets more time. Why are you failing him? I mean, that is a full-time job, y'all. And then I had an old principal, Ed Martin. Well, he was my old principal from Webb and he was at Martin. And he was like, hey, I have two new teachers that have never taught U.S. history, which is a tested subject. And by tested, we mean those students take the star exam. And he was like, I need some help. So I said, sure, I'll come over, you know. I was just thinking, I'll just come over and help them. He was like, I can pay you like a tutor. I was like, okay, sure. And then I started picking up a few more hours and he was like, I also have some students who are struggling. And I was wondering if you could work with them. And I was like, okay, this seems like a job again. And then after that year, I was like, I think I can make like a business out of this. And then that's when I just, you know, put on my hat and started thinking. I was like, basically what they want me to do is come in and teach an educator, everything they need to know to start school in like four days. That's a boot camp. And so I was like, well, it named itself teacher boot camp. So it's a short intensive course where I come in and work with your teachers, the smart administrators. And I'm not hired by a district. I'm hired by individual campuses. I come in and I work with teachers, generally in Title I schools. If you don't know a lot about education, you probably know that the average teacher that you're going to meet is a 20 to 30 something white female. That is not how our schools look. So we have a lot of cultural things that we need to deal with. We have a lot of things that they just didn't learn in their education preparation program. And that was the kind of sort of thing I was teaching. And then on the back end, I was also, they would be like, this teacher's about to get fired. I mean, she is making a lot of mistakes. You got to come in. And so at that point we would be co-teaching and helping them kind of like These are the things where you can improve. What do you think about this? You know, parents are upset because you're not making phone calls. Well, I don't want them to scream at me. Okay, well, here's how you make a parent phone call. And it was just those really simple things, systems like, well, they're always behind my desk looking for the stapler. Why don't you have an extra stapler at the front of the room and a hole puncher and pencils? And then you have your zones. They don't go behind your desk for anything, right? It's just like, you don't know what you don't know. You just don't. And so that's what I kind of created and... It was well. It was a one person, though. I never scaled it up. And that's what we're working on now that if I am elected, I'll have time to sort of scale it up. I cannot technically, legally, I cannot work for Austin ISD and be a school board trustee. And so teacher Bootcamp is it's moving online. And so you'll be able to go online and take the course like you would have a weekly call with me. So it's still alive. It's just not the way it used to look when I was on the ground on campuses. And my last posting, I call it, because Doby just, I love doby middle school here in Austin ISD, they were just like, look, you have eight spots. We have 10 teachers. Why don't you just be housed here? (laughs) Just come to work here every day. That's what we'll do. And that's what I did for the last two years, right up into and through the pandemic. So how do
1: teachers figure this out if they don't have someone like you guiding them? Oh my God.
2: Thank you for asking that question. Here's the thing. They don't. And then they quit. It's what I call baptism by fire. They're like, "Hey, welcome to Austin ISD. This is how you take attendance. This is how you do da, da da da. This that and the other. Here's your insurance. Here is your leave time. And all of those things are super super important. But nowhere in that week do they take they do a little mini SEL and a little mini cultural proficiency. We talk about SEL. <laughs> oh my gosh, so sorry, so sorry. So So that's social and emotional learning. And that's where we're getting into more than just the content that you're teaching, but what kids are dealing with. I will say a big chunk of the kids in our urban school district here in Austin have lived through some sort of trauma. And by trauma, I don't mean like there's gunfights on their streets every day, but that is the case for some kids. But just think about divorce, a parent passing, a parent being incarcerated, a parent that struggles with drug addiction or alcohol addiction or a parent that's just still dealing with their own trauma and is not parenting, so the adultification of young children. And I say that across every race, ethnicity, and economic, socioeconomic status in our district, there are kids living through this trauma. And so we don't spend time teaching teachers that. We don't even spend time, like a lot of what I do is I sit down and talk with teachers and I say, hey, tell me what your perfect class would be. And then I teach them how to get there. It's never going to be perfect, but I, show, I was like, you know what? You're asking for trouble when you allow the pencil sharpener to stay on all class period long, because if you haven't explained to kids that we're only going to sharpen pencils at the beginning during our um, transition periods and, you know, at the end before you go to your next class, then they don't know. You haven't modeled it. You haven't said it. The district, I always said to people, there's no way I should be making a living in the size, in a district the size of Austin ISD. They have a teacher quality department. And we even had a clash at one point because they were like, why are schools paying money for her? And they were like, well, are you going to do what she's doing? And I'm like, no. And they're like, well, can you take the older, like three through five year experienced teacher? And she take the zero to two year experienced teachers. And they were like, well, we don't have time to do the things that she's doing. They're like, then why are you complaining? Then what are they doing? That's a really good question. I don't want to say that they're, they are doing, y'all, they are doing work. They're doing professional development. I don't work in that department and I don't want to speak against them because I really feel like they do what they do because that's their job and there's somebody over them telling them what to do and there's somebody over that person telling them what to do. But the person that's like at the top, which is should be the superintendent, is saying every teacher needs to receive X amount of hours of, you know, systems. Every teacher needs to receive, and I mean hours, not 30 minutes, not a half day right before school starts, X amount of hours toward cultural proficiency, cultural, we call it several different things, but I really think that the best term for people to understand in Google would be cultural proficiency, understanding how, and to value and teach through with other cultures, right? I'll give you an example. When I was teaching U.S. history at Webb, the kids kept asking, they're like, miss, what's going on in Mexico? I don't know. I teach U.S. history. But they kept asking so much so that I had to run a timeline to say, This is happening in the United States. This is happening in Mexico. This is happening, remember Santa Ana? And then the view, because we only teach like the view of the heroes, which we no longer use that word, the heroes of the Alamo. But like Santa Ana, like what was this whole point? And when I began to look at it like that and talk about it, then kids were more interested in U.S. history, because that's the test they needed to pass, because I was valuing their culture. And then they would love it when I couldn't, like if I didn't know a word, and I'd be like, ¿Cómo se dice cattle? And then I'd be like, vacas, mucho, mucho. They'd be like, miss, no, that's not how you say cattle. And so they were teachers for me also, right? And so what's happening is if you're not getting that learning, then you are just struggling every day. And like so many teachers that I have mentored, you're sitting in your car crying at lunch or... I remember one teacher. I will not mention her name. She's a superstar now, and I've told the story, but the people have heard it. But I would hear a door slam, and I would get out of my room to go see what student was slamming the door. And It was like the teacher leaving. The class like, "No, no, no! You can't leave the class. I know you're upset and angry, but you can't just walk out of the class." So here's what we're gonna do. This is before I did teacher boot camp, but I was just a regular teacher. You're gonna call me, and then you're gonna come sit with my class because they're gonna just be working on something. It's gonna be real chill in there, and then I'll go sit in your class. We teach the same subject, so no instruction time will be lost. But there's nobody really. Doing that. And we don't tell teachers, you know, get a buddy like immediately. If you teach the same subject and there's a kid that's grinding, send them to that other teacher because they're gonna be learning the same thing, but maybe they'll be more receptive to that teacher. There's nobody doing that. The district should have that, and they do. They have professional development, they have people that will come in and mentor, but there's there's no checklist on it. There's no, yes, I've had so many hours of training and understand and even. They're supposed to have time to go watch Master Teachers, y'all. They're supposed to get a day off, like a couple of days, I think, to go watch Master Teachers. And it's like, we don't have subs, so just figure it out. I remember
0: all this. Yeah. I will say I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in with my, granted, it was 10 years ago that I taught, but there's such a gap that you're really speaking to, Candice, between what it is like to be an actual classroom teacher versus what professional development looks like versus what you actually need. and And maybe this is common knowledge or maybe people don't know, but when you are a certified teacher, in order to keep your certification current, you have to do professional development hours every year to stay current. So it's not like there was a time when you could get a lifetime teacher certificate, but that time is over. Yeah, I don't have one of those. So good for you. So, you know, they change that so that you have to stay current by getting professional development hours every year. I mean, that's one like shout out to teachers because they continually stay on their game in terms of being educated about what's current. However, right, what you're speaking to is that there's a real gap between what is required and what teachers actually need to be functional in classrooms. And it can be so overwhelming. Like I will say when you were talking about SEL, that kind of made my eye want to twitch because just as I was leaving the classroom was when social emotional learning was just starting to enter. And for me... I can step back now and see what an amazing push that is. But at the time, it was like, oh, my God, another thing, another thing. You know, they just keep putting things on our shoulders. And it was introduced to us, of course, right as we're coming back to school right? Those few days right before the school year is about to start. When you really want to be in your classroom. Oh my gosh, you are dying to set up your classroom. You haven't gotten to step foot in there yet. You need to set up your classroom. And you're just trying to figure out the first week and welcoming kids and figuring out where you're going to have everybody put their school supplies when they come to visit for that first day. And oh, and then now they're putting this on your shoulders, this whole new thing that you're going to be responsible for teaching. And even if you can step back in that moment to see what an incredible gift that will actually be to your Classroom. It's so overwhelming that you just can't. And so that's what's so difficult about it all is this gap between what they're pushing on teachers versus really looking at each teacher's needs.
2: Are you guys familiar with the concept of a wicked problem?
0: No, tell us.
2: (laughs) Tell us. Okay. (laughs) So a wicked problem is a problem that it's impossible to solve. I'm a Star Trek fan, so it would be the Kobayashi Maru, right? It's not meant to be solved because the factors keep changing and there's no way you can actually solve that. There is nothing in education that is a wicked problem. We know the answer, but there's too much money to be made in a broken system. Ooh. That is just the fact of it. There's just too much money to be made in a broken system, right? We have to have these different groups and these different, that's why there's so many grants for all of these different programs. And if we actually did what was necessary, if in education preparation programs, we actually, they were a year longer. What I mean by that is you go through all of your college or your alternative, and then you don't get to go teach a year one. Year one, you are an intern. And then we give you $30,000 of 30,000 or 40,000 it would not be quite your salary. You might have to work part time as a bartender, but we would give you $25,000 or $30,000 a year and you would go work under a master teacher for one year so that year one when you went into the classroom, you would actually not be a new teacher and you would have had chance to see oh I like that, I don't like that, well oh, I want to know about that, I want to do that. Instead of having, you know, a few months to do your teaching and then having to work a full time job because you still have to put food on the table because you can't work for free. We could do that. We know what the issue is and we know how to solve it. But again, there's too much money to be made in a broken system. So who's making the money? Like, oh my gosh. So I'll just start with me, right? So anybody that does any sort of education consulting, right? Now there is some true education consulting that where you need to come in. And I used to take this thing, I think it was called Kilgore training. Do you remember? It was like a long time ago. If you were a teacher in Texas, it was how to read the teaks how to realize the what you're supposed to be doing, like the verb in the TEKS are the Texas essential knowledge and skills. It is what we call in Texas our state standards. So, of course, to teach you how to read the TEKS. How in the world can you get out of your teacher preparation program and not understand how to read state standards? If you go to school in Texas, it doesn't matter where you're going to go teach. You still need to know the value of how to read a state standards. Even if your state uses, you know, the common core, you still have to be able to read it and understand the verb and Maslow's and all of those sorts of things. Like, how are you not getting that? And so there's people making money on teaching teachers that after the fact. There's money like me, teacher systems. Like, you do not want to have kids pass a piece of paper up just by poking the kid in the back. that's a fight you're about to start. Say, this is what I would like you to do. When I say go... I want you to pass the paper to the person on the left. How do we pass papers? We hold it out and we wait for the person who's receiving the paper to take it. We do not poke. And I'm talking, y'all, this is high school I'm talking about. Not first grade. You know what I'm saying? This is high school. Nobody's telling them to pre-think. When I say go, when I tell you to move and then give instructions, like we start talking and kids start moving. We're like, wait, no. come what? Ah! We make money because nobody ever taught them that. Intervention. And RTI, which is response to intervention with students who are struggling is super, super important. Why do we have intervention? Because we didn't have time to reteach or we didn't do it well. There is one sort of, I guess you could say a methodology. It's like, let's say we're all teachers. We all teach third grade. Okay. And this is not compartmentalized. We all teach third grade whole, all of the subjects. And Claire's students, like on the last assessment, the short cycle assessment, they all made between 80 and 90 Her kids are zooming. My kids were hovering around the 70 range. So we're not too concerned with me. But, oh, Nicole, honey, why is it that over 50% of your class failed this test? What's going on? So we don't move on. We now switch kids. We do a reteach day. And Nicole's kids go to Claire. And maybe I just keep my kids. And then, Nicole, you're going to do an enrichment activity because those kids already got it. Claire, you're going to do a reteach activity. I'm going to kind of see the middle, midland, and maybe I'm just going to reteach with a little bit of enrichment. That takes time. That takes money. And we're just rushing to get to the next short cycle assessment, right? So, but if we did it that way or any other way that like a million people have come up with, then would we really need to hire contractors like outside tutors to come in, partners to come in and work with the kids. But those are $300,000, $30,000, $50,000 contracts. Again, too much money to be made in a broken system. If you fix it, the money tree, what does it say? The well going to dry up. It's going to dry up. And it's not to say those things aren't needed, but not to the extent that we are milking this cow.
1: Someone is pushing, 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 not slowing it down. Who is that? Is that the school board? Is that the superintendent? Is that TEA? Who is putting this pressure that is preventing y'all from being able to correct these problems ahead of time.
2: It's the Texas Education Agency, but honestly, it's George W. Bush. <laughs> You're like, "What? He hasn't been governor for a while." Nickleby. <laughs> but the whole point is that George W. Bush basically raised high stakes testing with no child left behind. That is what the whole country runs on that now. So it's not just the state of Texas, it's the whole country. And so now it's this The only way to know if kids know what they know is for them to bubble some sheets in. That is not true. If I'm teaching history and my kids can do a final project on the formation of this country and it's, you know, foibles and it's, you know, really great things about it, then I know that my kids learned that. So I don't have to have this, but if you go and look and see $86 million, $200 million over however many years with Pearson and ETS and now Cambian testers, right? Those are the testing companies, right? Those are the testing companies that we've kind of bounced around in Texas for years. Again, millions and millions of dollars going to these tests. So do I believe that we need to assess our kids? Absolutely. Do I think short cycle assessments are valuable and end of the six and nine weeks tests are valuable? 100%. I'm an educator. I want to know what my kids know before. I know that every day before they go out the door so that we can say, hey, the federal government says, are you doing well in English? No, you're doing well in math we have to have some sort of gauge. We do not have to have the gauges that we currently have the way we
0: have. Well, and I want to throw in another theory. Just I know I'm not the expert on this panel, but I'm going to throw in too that it is I would imagine that it's also tied to having people in decision making positions who are not educators and who have not had significant experience in education. Of course, they're going to be open to these privatized solutions that seem like they are the Band-Aid that's going to fix it all. And that, mm, no surprise, are also very expensive.
1: Yeah, I was thinking, who put that bug in his ear? Who said, "Ooh, it's testing, testing?
2: Because <laughs> <It was, laughs> here we are. It's when you look at all of the different countries and we always wound up like, you know, but this is like started in this remember in this Well, you don't remember because you weren't alive and I wasn't either, but I'm a history teacher, so I've spent a lot of time in it. But back in the late 50s and 60s, when we had the race for the moon and it was like, oh, my God, the Chinese kids are so much smarter than the United States kids. The Russian kids know so much. Well, they don't got nothing else. They got no food. They're going to school. Right. In our country, no one ever thinks about the circumstances are different. In China, for the most part, back then, it was like, hey, if you don't show me something about third grade, you're going to be working in a rug factory, right? Oh, you're athletic? You're going to be a gymnast. There was no everybody has a chance, right? I used to tell my, as a horrible teacher, no, nah, I think back, I probably shouldn't have said this, but I would be like, y'all, this is the only country where you can actually be a screw up. So there's so many second chances for you guys in here that you can <laughs> turn it around. Thank God you live in America. But that is the fact is that it's different. We don't have the same, like, if you don't do this, our kids have a chance to find themselves. And you're gauging them right at the moment where they have no idea who they are. We start in third grade, right? And, of course, we want to know if they can read. We want to know if they can write. We want to know if they can do math. Those things are important. But those end-of-the-year testing, and it's a lot of the pressure comes from the teachers and from families, right? I taught in Title I schools for the most part, you guys. And it was always like we had a beat the star, rock the star. And it was like, this is our chance to show the state of Texas just who we are. And that's the way it was, right? It wasn't like the star is coming. It's a terrible test. It's so horrible. You know, da, da, da. and now I'm like, it's on my kid, She's like, what are my stars for You don't need to know. You're fine. Go, Go enjoy your summer. They came a couple weeks ago, and she's been asked. She asked me twice, and I'm like, "Yeah, I'll come to you later. Ask me later. Never."
0: Yeah, I hear that. Same.
2: She's a straight A student. She does not need to know what those tests tell her.
0: Yeah, and if you know anything, right? We all know that the way that you perform on tests is not indicative of your potential.
2: And why would I give that doubt, that ability to second guess herself, for her to say, "Wow, I have a 3.94." I'm vice president of this organization at my school. I'm in track. I'm in volleyball, but I didn't pass the star. Right. Or even say, if this, you didn't pass it, but now they have this thing called approaches standard, which means you didn't really pass it, but you got close enough for us to count. Close enough. It's really approaches standards is good enough. Good enough. (laughs) That should be for me. I I like that, that, that they have that now, but the testing in and of itself is not healthy. And if you could prescribe how every school, every campus, every teacher, right, every school district would communicate the star, then you might be OK. But you can't do that. I don't know if you guys know this, but you can't reward kids who do well because, why? I mean, you shouldn't do that, right? So like, here are all the kids that passed star test. We're giving them a gold medal. So, like every other kid is like, oh, so, you know, we used to do that. We no longer do that. That used to be like a thing districts and schools would do. And we're like,
1: <laughs> yeah, let's not do that. Yeah, we're gonna have an episode where we dig in deep into accountability and testing because that's another beast to (laughs) spend some time in. But since we have you with us, and you know so much about this, we would love to talk about the teacher shortage. Nicole alluded to this a little bit earlier about the task force that the governor formed. And I'm guessing Mike Marath also is very aware of that. We don't have teachers and it's a big problem. And with your history background, can you tell us, is this a new thing? I mean, how was it 10 years ago, five years ago? Why does it feel like right now we're in such a
2: crisis point? So I will say that for Title I schools and by Title I, that's just like the federal code for schools that have a certain percentage of students that are what we call low SES or low socioeconomic status. We also call them eco-dis or economically disadvantaged. We're basically talking about poor kids, right? And generally, when we talk about poor kids, into that category falls Black and Brown, certain Asian groups, and then poor whites. And so when we look at all of those schools, they have always had a teacher shortage because, again, it's harder to teach in those communities. Because of sometimes lack of parent involvement. It's not always that. And then sometimes lack of resources. So there's always been a teacher shortage. I just want everybody to understand that. Because I've taught in Title I schools my whole career, except for a very short period when I taught affluent students. So there's that. Has this happened before? There's always a teacher shortage. Like we're always a couple of thousand of teachers short in the United States at any given point, right? Or like 15,000 or 10,000 in the whole country, including Alaska, Hawaii, and our protectorates, right? Like Guam, those places like that. We're on bases or DOD schools. like, There's always a shortage, but nothing like this. In case you don't know, Houston, the largest district in the state of Texas, is down 1,000 teachers. Cy Fair, the third largest district, is almost at 1,000 teachers. Dallas ISD is hovering around 700, and Austin ISD, when I looked yesterday, was 568. That is a lot of missing teachers. Now, to the panel that the governor has set up, which really is being administered by Michael Marath and whoever he told to actually go do it, because I'm sure he's not going to the meetings every time. Great. That is a beautiful optic. It doesn't multiply teachers. There's no solutions that they can come up with that will fix things right now, unless you want to do what Florida did and say, hey, if you were ever at any point in the military, you don't have to be certified, start school, and you can start teaching at the same time. We'll figure it out as we go. Or like (laughs) Arizona, you can say, hey, yeah, you want to be a teacher? You're in school. You've been there for three weeks. No worries. You can start teaching today, but you need to finish up in about five years, okay? Hmm. Wow. Those measures are extreme. Now, I want to be really careful with this next one because I don't want to offend anybody, but I am an old school teacher. And I remember when I started, it was like, excuse me, everybody face front, like my desk was in rows. I actually had chalk, like a chalkboard. I've learned so much and grown so much since then. And again, like you mentioned, Nicole, SEL, that social emotional learning is a whole new way to do things, right? And so what well, we should have always been doing that, we didn't know that as teachers, we should be doing that. As parents, we always do that. Right. It's like your kids three. You're like, I know you're upset and you're crying. Use your words. Tell me what it is that you need. Right. We didn't do that with third graders, though. Right. And we we're like, that is not allowed here. We don't do that in third grade. You are a big boy, a big girl. Get it together. Right. Like now we're back to, hey, you seem like you're struggling. What is it that you need from Miss Hunter? So we have this new thing called it's like retire, rehire. So there an AISD has opened the door. So that's the first one I'm a little bit critical of, or I shouldn't say critical, I'm scared of if they don't do it correctly, if they muck it up. So they're saying, hey, you retired, you used to teach for like 30 years and you're, you know, you want to come back? Come on back. They can't come back like they left. They left in 1985. They left in 1995. I don't care if they actually left in 2020. Things have changed and you got to get them up to speed. Right. That is my first concern about the quick fixes that we have. My second concern is international teachers.
1: Talk about this. I heard a podcast about this once and it was fascinating.
2: I haven't. And this is just me sitting in my office, kind of thinking about what are the implications of international teachers. When I work every day with middle class, 30 something white ladies, and I see all of the hurdles that they have to overcome to teach black and brown kids living in poverty and trauma. And then I think, oh, heckadoodle, you're bringing somebody from a whole other country that doesn't necessarily even understand how things work in our country. And I taught at Reagan, which is called now Northeast. That was the best job I ever had because basically an international school. Like I had the United Nations. When I taught at Bertha Sadler Means, I had Afghanis, my Cubanas, I had everybody. But that helped me work with those parents and I had to learn each individual culture. And like I could go to a parent of a kid here in Austin and be like, hey, this is Ms. Hunter. You know, today, Nicole was not following instructions, and We can't have that. Someone's going to get hurt, blah, 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 blah. When I would speak with my Afghani parents, I would be, today, Nicole was not honoring our class. She was very dishonoring of me as an instructor, right? And then they would be like, what? (laughs) Like when I teach my white parents to speak with black parents, I was like, for the most part, and I'm not speaking for all black people, but generally for the most part, our perspective is if it's a problem, you're going to call me. (laughs) That's your job. You're the teacher. And a lot of Latin X cultures are like, you know, dona Maestra, you're in charge. You tell me what the problem is. Whereas in our Eurocentric cultures, it's like, I'm up here to find out what's going on. <laughs> what do you need? Is there a problem? Right. And when you put all of that in the same place with one person, they need to be able to do that. Now, that's a little bit easier if you are a native born to the United States or if you've been here a long time. You've learned to ride the ebb and flow of the different cultures. But not so if you're coming from the Philippines or from Spain. And my concern is that they're like, welcome with no training. So yes, these are quick fixes. And do we need bodies? 100%. But you got to do it right. So if you're coming from another country, I don't even know, like, is there a course that exists? I haven't Googled it. Is there, like, Welcome to America? Here's the American educational system.
0: Well, I'm sure there will be a consulting firm that creates one. That's quite <laughs> uh, expensive.
2: <laughs> I should maybe, like, invent that right now. <laughs> Thank you, guys.
0: You, you
2: might want to get in on the ground floor.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> I, should t- I don't really have, like, it really should be someone who is almost an anthropologist who could, you know, really speak well to different cultures in the United States and who has studied, like, the different cultures that have meshed here are not meshed because they haven't, but that kind of are the amalgam of what is now the United States. So I think that that's who would probably need to be in charge of that, not me, because I have a lot of ideas, but I'm nowhere ready to be able to do that. But I think that that's super important. But these quick fixes... They don't bring more bodies. Well,
0: they exacerbate the problem, right? Because you're setting people up for failure who are inevitably probably going to just quit because it's too hard. They're, like you said, crying in their car on any break. And so then they quit. And then we just have the same cycle of of problems.
2: Or worse, they stay. Mm. And then they're discontented. I actually, my hand to God, you guys. One time I was in a class and I asked the teacher when we were done, I was just observing and they called me and it was one of those situations where like he's about to be fired. He does no longer work in education. Thank God. And it was at a school here in Austin, a very low income school. It's the largest Title I school. We have 1,200 kids. Um, 89% of them are Hispanic. You have a, like a handful of black kids and a handful of white kids and a few more international kids. And at the end of the class, he was teaching sixth grade, which are still babies. And I just asked him, I said, mister, do you like children? From his course, he was so you guys don't know how to do anything. I just explained to you guys last week, and I was like, I really want you to consider if this is what you'd like to be doing. If this is what you want to do, I can help you do it better. I can help you get that sort of class I think you may want. But if this is not something that you're willing to invest in with time and energy, then I really would suggest, like this is totally not part of my contract, but I really would suggest that you consider another career path. But people think, hey, I got my BA, I got a master's degree. Really kind of listless. I can't find a job doing what I want to do. I'll just teach. I mean, how hard could it be? Right.
0: You get summers off. You got a long winter break.
2: Yeah, you get summers off. It's So, I mean, it's great, you know, but they don't really understand how it works. And they're like, oh, I can just, I'll, I'll do what I'll do. I'll go work for a school and get my loan forgiven for five years. And I always tell my teachers in our truth talk, you have to stay for five years before they will forgive you. So can you make it? Is the, is the question. So I think the teacher shortage problem is a lot bigger. I think that, honestly, I will just say Austin ISD has exacerbated it. We don't really need as many teachers. We wouldn't need as many teachers if there wasn't this debacle of essential area redesign. Long story short, the state of Texas Education Agency says you have to have so many minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity. Our former superintendent went to a campus. That was not going on. She was so upset. So she scrapped the whole thing of where kids have A, B, C, art, P, E, music, art, P, E, music over a three-day period and said, we're going to do P.E. every day. Every day we're going to do P.E. But that means that we have to hire 55 more art, P.E. and music teachers and 102 physical education T.A.s. I'm sorry, ma'am. That's not a thing. There's no such thing as a physical education teaching assistant. Oh, you mean you just want to hire another body to do something that you can't pay another teacher to do? they have no training in health, they have no training in education, and you just going to turn them loose with kids every third day? Is that what you're saying you're going to do? So that exacerbated our hiring kind of issue that we have here in Austin ISD, and parents have spoken against it, teachers have spoken against it, kids have spoken against it, but it's that continual disconnect between what will work, right? So that's where we are. I think about other districts, their problems are not exacerbated by that situation, but they exacerbated the situation by not caring for their teachers' mental, social, emotional well-being, paying what teachers are worth. I have nothing against sports, but I don't think that you should make millions of dollars for throwing a ball or saying some lines to some music and the fate of America is in the hands of these people and you want to pay them 30000 40000 $50,000. There is no teacher that should start teaching in the United States that is not making six figures for the amount of work we do. I say, pay me by the hour. As a teacher, I was always like, pay me by the hour and let me get overtime and double time, I mean, triple time for Sunday and double time for Saturday and then holidays. Yeah, pay me by the hour because I would for sure make six figures at that point.
0: I don't know any teacher who doesn't work. Y'all work in the summer. Yes, you might take a teeny vacation time, but you're also starting to think ahead for the next year. We would get together as a team too and team plan over the summers, not to mention the professional development that we were having to attend over the summer. 100%. You were always working. I would have a designated day too, where my husband would pick up my kids so that I could work late. And so those are the nights I would work till like eight or nine or whatever, and then go home and try to catch up. I always brought work home too. Like It's not the simple job that so many people try to pretend that it is. It's incredibly consuming.
2: And that's how we get people into the business. And then they realize they don't want to be in the business. And here's the thing that is most damaging. So like I said, staying is super damaging. But then when you come and you leave in October or you come and you leave in November, it's like, dude, stay till Christmas, at least wait till the Christmas break and leave, right? And so we have that sort of thing. I will tell you that last year, my daughter started, now mind you, and she spent most of fifth, the last part of fifth grade in her room. Then she spent sixth grade in her room. And then her first year in middle school, seventh grade, her English teacher comes and this, I do not falter one bit. If I was in the situation that teachers were in at the beginning of last year, yeah, I'd quit too. She came for one day. My daughter fell in love with her, and she was done. They got a sub they had for a couple of months. My daughter thought he was really cool. He got a full time job in Round Rock. They had another sub stint, and then they got another semi permanent teacher whom they loved, and then that person left like in March for there was like some sort of issue with certification or whatever. And then they got a sub. And I'm not joking, guys. Three days before school is over, the sub went into labor. <laughs> so, yes, she took the ELA, the English Language Arts Star, and she got actually approaches, And that's a miracle. That is a miracle, considering she did not have a consistent teacher. Now, my daughter is at a very, aff- well, not a very, but an affluent school that's a fine arts academy that has resources, parents that show up to do work, PTA, all that sort of thing. And think about, I know I have a friend, my actual co-host, he would get notices like, yeah, there was no teacher your kid sat in the cafeteria today. Yeah, there was no teacher your kid was in the gym all day for that class, you know, just because it's middle school. And so multiply that three or four times a week, five, six different teachers, because there's no subs. And the central office going and subbing on Tuesday, yeah, that was real cute. Sub for the week, not on Tuesday. For the week, put your job on hold and sub for the week. You'll be making some different decisions. But this shortage is not going away. So there are no quick fixes and all the quick fixes will exacerbate the problem. I don't know, I have not thought of, I I wake up at seven o'clock in the morning, well, I wake up earlier than that, but I started seven o'clock in the morning reading Ed Week, reading Edutopia, seeing what the education blogs are saying and reading, I'm on a bunch of different teacher Facebook pages to kind of see where teachers are. And there, if you go Google on Facebook, there are about 30 new Facebook pages of what else can you do besides teaching? Wow. Mm. How do you take your teaching skills and move them? And I just kind of lurk on those to see what are the issues? What are teachers saying? I guess that's what, like just a teacher, if I would give a kid a test, that informs my instruction. As someone who potentially, or someone who wants to be a school board member, that informs me where teachers are.
0: That's the perfect segue, Candice.
1: Yes. (laughs) Tell us <laughs> why you need him on the school board. Yeah, because we are keeping you so long. I know. I feel like you could talk to us for hours and I would be on the edge of my seat for all of it because this information is incredible. But we definitely want you to share about your school board race. So can you first just tell us what does the school board do? And why do you want to do this?
2: <laughs> <laughs> So in our Texas education code, the way we've set it up and the way the kind of the thinking in Texas is, is that we want people who just care, right? We want people who just care. What that really equates to is we want people who are wealthy and can afford to take the time and who are the elite of our society to run school boards because that's really who it is. It doesn't, our school board should look like our students. And if you just Google any school board in the state of Texas, I'm just going to be really honest with you. You're going to see middle class or affluent white people, right? A lot of women. You'll see one or two businessmen, but you'll see a lot of like people who used to be former teachers, stay at home moms, that sort of thing. Is there anything wrong with that? Absolutely no. If your school district looks like that, then that's what your school board should look like. But if your school district looks like Austin ISD, I think our school board is, you know, we have we have someone who's Asian. And when I say Asia, I mean like from the subcontinent of Asia. We have three Hispanics and two African-Americans. And then the new interim superintendent is African-American. That is what a school board should look like. And I forgot District 4. We do have a lady. We have two ladies who are, um, I would say, Eurocentric background. I have no idea if they're English, British, Canadian. I don't know, right? But they present white, that's how I can say it. And so for me, like I said, I never knew this. But once I started digging in and wanting to do it and helping people, and I started doing it. And that is really, like I said, ramped up since 2020, where people are like, hey, can you this is an issue going on on my campus. Can you help us problem solve? Or, hey, this is an issue going on. What can we do? Who should we talk to? And I just began being that resource. And I actually had a really great compliment from someone at a union meeting I went to recently. They're saying, you're more of a trustee than some of our trustees. And I was like, thank you. And that's why I'm going to run. I'm already doing the job. I would say on a day to day, and there's some things, you know, I don't go into, I can't go into executive session, but when they have their meetings till 1.30, the ones that we see, I'm with them till 1.30 in the morning. Now that they've opened back up, I'm like actually physically in the room with them until 1.30 in the morning. When board docs and board docs is an agenda setting platform that the Austin ISD uses. So if you Google Austin ISD board docs DOCS, It will take you to the meetings and the agendas, and it will show you like all of the documents that trustees have to read through so that they can make good decisions. I'm going through all of those things also. The law. So you'll hear them say like D.C. local. That's what Austin ISD, that's our policy. And D.C. legal, that's what the Texas Education Code, the state says we have to do. And sometimes they differ just a teeny tiny bit, right? So one will say you have to, and one will say you can, and then we will decide if we will. Right. And so it's those sorts of things. And all of that is found there on board docs. I'm out in the community at different schools. I'm I have a couple principals that will tap me and be like, hey, this is an issue, but I can't say anything. Will you make noise about this? And I'm like on it. I'll have teachers message me and say, our water just got turned off and we don't have water and downtown. is taking too long. And I'll call and like, hey, this is Miss Hunter. Is there a reason that that school does not have bottled water? Do I need to go to Sam's right now? I will go to Sam's and get some bottled water and take it to that school if that's what needs to happen. So, as a trustee, you neces you don't necessarily or like you wouldn't do those things because an advocate has a little bit more leeway of things you can do where you don't get into too much trouble. But I'm already doing those things, and for me, running is just leveling up, right? Like that's the next natural progression for me. Like, why wouldn't I do that?
1: Candace, you are so qualified. I mean, thank you. I want to vote for you. I I'm not in Austin ISD. Well, but okay. well, we should maybe say this quickly. The way Austin ISD is broken down is is into districts. So school
2: races are local, but it's also like hyper local. And but then there's also at large members. So in Austin ISD, by the way, in case you don't know, we are a district of 74,000 students. We used to be 86,000. That should tell you something. So we are a district of about 74,000 students. The majority of our students are Hispanic. We have a very small black population. We have a large international population. Over 100 different languages are spoken in Austin ISD. Okay, We have nine trustees because we have nine places. Seven are what we call single member districts. So we have District 1. That is the district that I am running for. And if you live up to Rumberg, crossing over to the west side of Lamar, all the way down, scooting around Mueller, And that's because of the Voting Rights Act. We would include Mueller. The white population would dilute the black population. So Mueller is that little scoop out. And then going all the way to 183, up into the end of where Austin ISD around 969, MLK going down into Cherrywood, that's District 1. District 2, I won't go through all of them, but District 2 is going to be your Southeast Austin, going up through Montopolis, coming down there. District 3 catches the side of District 1, that's going to be your Runberg. So those schools are like Novato and T.A. Brown and those schools. District 4, that's going to be your McCallum, your Lamars. That's going to be your North Austin, but not quite North. Uh, It's like North, Northwest. And then District 5 and 6, that's going to be your South, Southwest. That's when you start getting into your Circle C's. That's when you get into Kiker and Nan Clayton, Bowie. Those schools kind of ride that wave down there. District seven, actually, like so it's five is north and six and seven. And then we have two at large, which is eight and nine and eight and nine are every trustee is responsible for the entire district. But the seven single member districts are, like you said, hyper focused on that one. And district one, the district that I'm running for has the most schools or it has 25. It had 25. We just redistricted. It now has 27. And that's because District 1 is in the core. It's where all of our schools started. So as the city moves out, there's less and less schools. Well, I was going to ask,
1: as a voter, when you're voting for school board, how do you know if someone's a good
2: candidate? It's best to do your research. There are a bunch of candidate forums. And just like any other election, you want to hear what they have to say. You should be careful, tested, because people always, you know, this ear candy, we want to tell you, my, I promised you, da, 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 da. And so it's really important to know what board members can and can't do. I'll talk about that a little bit later if you guys would like. But what's super important is to know if your values align with that person. And so I have not been shy about that. It's not a secret. And anybody who's on social media knows because like I make videos and talk about different things. I have a podcast. I share my opinion very openly about all sorts of subjects. And so people who are supporting me at this point, that that big first push, those are people who already know where I stand. I'm what you would call more of a progressive candidate, meaning that, I want to have more of our decision-making process come from information provided by teachers, students, families, even just, you know, our people who work on our campus. I don't just want people in central office saying, well, let me tell you how this works. No, I want to hear from that person how it works. So if there's a problem and we have to do something with custodians, then I want to talk to custodians. If there's a problem with something is working, for instance, we have this end-of-the-year test and teachers and campus level experts said, don't give us this test after star. And the district did it. And the scores were abysmal. And we hope that what those scores are telling us are not true. We just hope kids were through and tired and just were like A, A, B, B, C, C, C. And I still have that. That's what I'll spend this weekend doing is I'll be looking at star data and I'll be looking at MOI data or middle of the year and end of the year map is the test that we take for benchmarking to figure out if, cause the map test is telling us right now that nine percent of African-American students are on or above grade level. And I don't believe that. I know it's bad. I know it's bad. It's less than 20%. I know that. That's what the star is probably going to tell me once I disaggregate by race and ethnicity. But I think that that administering that test after kids were tired, because star is the usual the stopping place. Then after that, it's all fun and games. So what the district did when they were like, no, 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 you can't give us a test after star. We've been training these kids for years. They know that after star, we are free. They said, no, we're going to give you one more. And I don't know if the kids were like. Yeah, no, I'm not doing that. (laughs) And the only way for me to know that is to disaggregate the data and look at star. And then I'll publish that information for everybody, all the parents to see, to kind of say, yes, this is what it is. Or guys, here's the real deal. Here's what's going on. And that's just coming, you know, I'm not like an expert or whatever, but I can do percentages. And so that's the sort of thing, but not listening to campus experts. I think that's the thing that we miss out as candidates. So if you cannot personally get in contact with a candidate, which I don't know why you wouldn't be able to. (laughs) like you ain't that busy but if you can't personally get in contact with a candidate then i know that i have email like if i see something i'm like hey dm me i'll try to walk you through that of course i have the privilege of time because i work part-time for acc and educator certification so i have the privilege of time to do that i always tell people i'm gracefully underemployed i stay underemployed so that i can do advocacy when i went to acc y'all i'll tell you this little side note to, to do my job or whatever i was like hey so thanks for offering me the job. It's really cool, but I just put a link in the chat. So if everybody could click on that link, it will show you like statements I've made to the media. It will show you some videos that I've made. It'll show you some of the advocacy work that I do. And if you guys are good with all of that, that's great. I'd be happy to take this job. But if you're not, it was really nice meeting you, right? I have the privilege to do that because poverty is nothing new to me. <laughs> <laughs> and the, they were like, Oh, no, 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 no. We already looked you up before this interview. We know who you are and we're good with what you're doing. I was like, oh, okay, cool. But a lot of our board members don't have that leeway. They can't move because they work for like major employers, right? They're like, ooh, I really want to make this decision. And I don't know that they're not making that decision independently, but I wonder sometimes when you're tied to this particular entity that may or may not benefit our school. Like, you know, sometimes I wonder about that tension, but, and I'm not saying there's been any ill doing. I'm just saying, I wonder about that tension. That's a tension that I don't have. Again, speak to them, look up forums, Google them. Like, literally Google them. You can Google anybody nowadays. And if they've ever said, you know, news article, use the Wayback Machine. If they try to delete things off of their their things, use the Wayback Machine and go and see, like, oh, that person posted. And they said this, that, and the other about public education. Do your research. But if you can't, y'all, League of Women Voters always kind of gives you a really good synopsis. Thank God for them. They always give you a really good synopsis of that person. And it's really general. But if you're just going to, like, throw a dart then League of Women Voters, their their um, guide is very helpful.
0: Where can we find you, Candace? Shout out all the
2: things. You can just find me personally on Facebook, Candace Hunter. But as far as things that are campaign wise, at Hunter for A-I-S-D, H-U-N-T-E-R, the word for F-O-R-A-I-S-D. And I'm on Twitter right now. I'm on Instagram right now and Facebook. So those are the three main platforms that, cause I'm managing everything myself. Those are the three that I can really handle. We're going to have some meet and greets. We have, if you go to my website and I'll hand that to you guys, it's a long one. It's through Wix.
0: We'll put it in our show notes.
2: Perfect. Perfect. So I'll give that to you guys so you'll have it. And then you can go there to donate, to volunteer with me. And then we have a sign up sheet because I do a lot of volunteer work. As a matter of fact, shout out to Austin Voices and youth for youth and education. I just was over at Forest Park apartments yesterday. We were giving away food and fans and all that good kind of stuff. And then on August 4th, we will be at Dolby doing more good work. And then August 8th, we'll be at Novato. So if you want to come with me and volunteer, ask me questions while we're volunteering. I'll talk to you. We can do some good work and talk at the same time.
1: I love it. Okay, I have one more wrap-up question and then our I think it's a fun (laughs) send-off. Okay, so Parents are so busy, you know, you're working, raising your kids, trying to like keep your head on straight, not get sick anymore with COVID. What's the one thing you recommend they do pay attention to regarding their child's education? If they just have like 10 minutes a week, what should they focus in on?
2: Honestly, if you're super busy and you only have 10 minutes, the one thing I would suggest you do with that 10 minutes is email your school's teacher, your child's teacher. Email that teacher. and it's like, hey, I'm Candace's mom. I'm just checking up on their progress. And that's it. Or call the principal and say, hey, I'm just checking up. Is there anything that I can do from my work or my stance to help you out? Because that's a quick thing where you can get in. I was like, well, we really do need more paper towels or or, we really do need somebody to come up and do tardy passes for 30 minutes in the morning or if you don't have that kind of time. But I would suggest that you communicate with the people who are the closest to your student. And then if you want to see what is going on largely, no joke, listen to my podcast, AISD Ex Officio. It's unofficial. We can talk about Austin ISD, but we're not beholden to them and can say whatever we want.
0: Love it. That will be in the show notes for sure.
1: All right, Nicole, you want to kick us off? So we're doing this wrap-up segment. So just mention something that has your attention. So if it's a book that you're really into right now or a documentary you saw or an article, something that you can't just
2: get out of your mind. I'm going to jump, you guys, and I'm going to say, I'm going to change it a little bit. I'm going to tell you about an app. Love it. That is amazing. And it works for people like me who are always out and about and just wanting to learn and know. Have you guys heard of Blinkist? Nope. It's amazing. How do you spell that? Blinkist. B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist. And they have what are called blinks. So a book that I love and have read the entirety of two books. So I've read Atul Gawande's Checklist Manifesto I love a checklist. I have that book. Have you read the book though? I've read like 30 pages. I need to finish the book. (laughs) Excellent. What you need to do is get, download Blinkist and listen. So the main points of that book are in what are called blinks or like little chapters. And so it will give you the overview of the book. It's been curated, I think with the help of the author of like, if people couldn't read your book, what is it you want them to know? And they have Brene Brown, they have like all of the the really big authors, and then they take suggestions like, what should we make a blink on? And so I don't have time to sit and read books for hours, but I drive everywhere and I can basically consume what five or six books would have been about in the course of a day Am I picking up and dropping off kids? Wow. And so, yeah. And then of course I have Audible, (laughs) but if I don't have time to listen to the whole thing, because I really don't have time to sit and read. Right. But I can listen and wash and like I'm going to put some blinks on and like do the laundry or whatever. So Blinkist is the thing that I cannot stop. They should give me some sort of kickback or <laughs> sponsor, sponsor your podcast. That's what I need. I'm going
0: to call them uh. <laughs> and you're a real <laughs> customer. Like you are really speaking to what they do.
1: Nicole, do you have anything?
0: OK, well. I feel like I always wind up just on, you know, some sort of show or limited series. Okay. So the one that I just finished is, I think it's called Web of Make-Believe. I'm going to have to confirm the name of it. It is on Netflix. And it is, I think it's six episodes. It's either five or six episodes. And the first four are individual stories about these sort of like internet. I don't want to call them scandals. I feel like that's a little too kind of salacious, but kind of. They're kind of internet scandals. And then the last two is a two-part episode, and it is about this guy who, well, he committed fraud, but in the course of him getting caught, he does reveal the government surveillance technique that was being used that we didn't know about. And it was because he knew what the weak link in his system was. Anyway, it was just super fascinating. And it really helped connect what happens in on the internet with the effects that happen in real life. Like it makes that connection really well. So I was super fascinated by it did not intend to get caught up in it and then wound up binging it. So I think it's called web of make believe but I'll make sure and and confirm that and put that in the show notes and Claire what about you?
1: Thank you. Okay, I'm gonna watch that this weekend because I need something to watch. I had two come to mind, so I'll say them real quick. The one related to Candace's is, okay, I might not finish it, so perhaps I will use Blinkist, but I have begun to read Tiny Habits by B.J. Fogg, which is a really great book. If you're trying to implement some new habit you want to do, and he's all about just breaking it down into the smallest step and building up from there. And it's great. It's very practical and systems oriented, and I love it. And the thing that I thought about connected to Nicole's recommendation was I saw this show on Hulu called Angels and Demons about the Victoria's Secrets Rise and Fall. It was fascinating. So if you need something interesting about this huge company, American company, check that one out.
0: That sounds very interesting, too.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Candace Hunter. I am so excited that you're running. As you mentioned, school board members make zero dollars. So you're basically trying to be an elected super volunteer. And I appreciate that.
2: I love it. Elected super volunteer.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's another quotable. Claire,
0: you've got the next quotable. Love it.
2: Yes.
1: But I hope that Austin ISD get that has you because you would be amazing.
0: Has the honor of your service. But here's the beautiful thing: you are already serving. It's incredible.
2: Yeah, but we need you to be that decision maker if we can make it happen. I think that it's great, and I'm like I said, I'm running. But I tell people all the time because there are a lot of people like that are invested in this, like I think almost more than me or as much as me. And I tell them I'm going to do the work whether it's from the dais or my couch, so no worries, you get. It's not like I'm going to not get elected and i mean, like, I'm done. That's not going to happen. I still have a kid in this system. Love it so much. Best kind of candidate.
0: Yes. Redeeming my faith in public service.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Thank
0: you, everybody, for joining me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos-O'Neill, on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully, we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics, and we hope that you'll do more with us check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com, where you'll find links to all of our social media and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks everybody and have a good one.